Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. If we are a country in which these important institutions, capitalism, racism, democracy itself are interwoven, then we need to start thinking about racism in much more sophisticated ways as not simply interpersonal, though it is that, but as something that is also intimately connected with our economy, that is connected with our government, that is connected with our politics. That was the core insight of critical race theory. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jane Koston, senior politics reporter at Vox, and today my guest is Ian Haney Lopez, professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley and author of Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. So today we're going to be talking about an issue which I immediately, when I saw a lot of folks having this conversation on the internet and having this conversation tangentially on the internet, I thought I needed to reach out to you. And that is on the subject of the intersection of race and class and the subject of which is often people have conversations with it within the scope of critical race theory. And the idea of critical race theory has been a hot debate because I think what we are seeing is that there is the concept of critical race theory as it was discussed, debated, devised by academics and activists in the 1970s and 1980s. And then there is how critical race theory has been disseminated or in some ways utilized in diversity workplace presentations at businesses and entities, um, including the federal government, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, for example. So I want to start out by asking, what are the basic tenets of critical race theory? And I'll start by saying that the basics, as I understand it, is that Racism is not an aberration. It is not a um, individualized sin. It is normal, not normal as in good, but normal as in common. Racism is effective. It advances the idea, the interests of, in this case, white people, either psychically or materially. Either it makes you feel better or it makes you more wealthy. And that it race is the product of social thought. Race is not a biological fact. Race is a social construction. Do I have that right? How would you define what these ideas boil down to, at, at, if you could? I think I'd start in a different place. I'd, I'd start by thinking about what critical race theory was reacting to, which we can describe as liberal race theory. So liberal race theory, especially as expressed in the 1950s and the 1960s, and especially as developed in the practice of law in the legal academy, understood racism as what we might now call prejudice or perhaps bigotry, the idea that it was interpersonal and also solvable, correctable. Um, uh, and, and what would solve it, for instance? Integration, getting to know people of a different race. And why would that solve it? Because at root, racism was understood to be an intellectual error. You simply, people were, you know, to use a phrase, ignorant and didn't know better. And if they only knew better, um, they would stop and they would change. 
Now, against that sort of an understanding of racism, along come a group of scholars who say, you know, this is a country that is founded through a sort of a complex dance between capitalism and racism. And this is not to make the United States exceptional. This is the history of colonialism. But if we are a country in which these important institutions, capitalism, racism, democracy itself are interwoven, then we need to start thinking about racism in much more sophisticated ways as not simply interpersonal, though it is that, but as something that is also intimately connected with our economy, that is connected with our government, that is connected with our politics. That was the core insight of critical race theory. To then say, okay, well, then what are the major tenets? That becomes a little bit challenging because the main insight is socially constituted in combination with these other important social institutions Now, if we dig down and say, well, how does it work in politics? That's one conversation. How does it work in the economy? That's another. How does it structure our culture? How does it inform our unconscious minds that are shaped by both the material environment we move in, but also the culture and Hollywood and all that? Super, super interesting. But I think the the most important takeaway is this is a move to treat racism seriously. And and I like to use the metaphor of economics. Like no one would think they understand economics by focusing simply on some people exchanging cash for goods, though clearly that's an important part of the economy. Most people would respond this like, well, yes, there's that, but there's the way in which the economy is structured by government. There's the cultural practices of consumerism. There's the political debates about winners and losers. That's what's happening with racism. Yes, there's an individual component. No one would deny it, but no one should think that that captures the full complexity of racism. Racism is also part of our government, part of our culture, part of our economy. That's the core insight of critical race theory. You have a quote in which you said that race may be America's single most confounding problem, but the confounding problem of race is that few people seem to know what race is. And there seems to be, in the reading that I've done on the subject of critical race theory, a bit of a dichotomy in which there's a general disagreement that if racism is a story, if racism is the result, there is no genetic reality of what race is, and that these categories can be shifted and changed you can have Japanese internment at the, in the same country in which then Asian Americans become quote unquote model minorities, that these ideas can shift and change. There's an idealist perspective of critical race theory in which you could just change the socialization of how race is constructed. But then there's also the idea of racial realism, which I kind of want you to unpack a little bit, because I come as someone who's written a lot about white nationalism, they have a very different understanding of what racial realism is. So it seems to be an interesting dichotomy that if racism and race are not necessarily solvable and correctable, but also that racism is a story that could be deconstructed, that could be shifted and changed depending on material needs. There's an argument by the late scholar Derek Bell that a lot of the Supreme Court cases that have advanced the rights of African-Americans came at a time when everyone was kind of like, okay, fine, we might as well. Like, for instance, uh, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. How does that dichotomy, how do you, how do you mesh those ideas together? Such a great question. So I would start this way. I would say, look, a lot of us have been saying, and frankly, anthropologists have known this for 150 years, that the notion that there are a few discrete races into which we, the human population, are biologically divided such that we have more in common with those within our racial group than we have with people in other racial groups, that that's just nonsense on stills. It's just ridiculous. And part of the way the anthropologists figured that out is they were really dedicated to proving that it was in fact true, but couldn't. No matter how many different ways they sliced and diced and parsed the human population, we are different physically. We are, we are different in our, our, our appearances, but those differences connect 
to our relative reproduction, reproductive isolation. When we're reproductive isolation from different groups, we tend to develop these different looks, but then we are, you know, if you think about the history of colonialism in the modern world, we're not really in reproductive isolation with anybody anymore, right? And people mix. So the idea of race as, as of racial categories as set and bounded by nature, complete lie, but it would be a tremendous mistake to then turn around and say, so the whole thing is a fiction. Obviously, that's not true. Obviously, racism is real. Obviously, the belief in racial categories are real. Obviously, race has tremendous implications for the way in which our society is structured, not just at a societal level, but at the, at the most micro level. What our lives look like as individuals is deeply implicated by how we're positioned racially by these cultural practices. So that's the sort of social construction. And now what you're Bringing in is like, okay, but what then are the forces that socially produce race? And it's so important to recognize that racism is functional, to pick up a term that you used earlier, that, that racism is solving problems for certain groups, that, that, that racism is justifying certain power relationships, racism is justifying different types of inhumanity and brutality and oppression and exploitation. Right? And those are all, we can say that in, 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 in these abstract terms, but per, perhaps the easiest way to, to, to see this in action is to think about the development of a black racial identity in North America in the 1600s. When people from Africa were first brought as unfree labor to the United States in 1619, there was not yet a conception of a black race. What you did have was a system of European colonialists who organized the economy through unfree labor, through the exploitation of unfree labor. And that unfree labor included these Africans brought to the northeastern seaboard, but it also included European Americans or Europeans who were also held as unfree labor. Over the 1600s, we moved to a system of slavery. What could be used to justify it? Initially, the justification is that people who are not Christian but instead savage can be deprived of any right to control their bodies or to control their labor. But that turned out to not be sufficiently stable because people can convert and people can become Christian. And so by the 1670s, you begin to see laws around slavery that move from the language of Christian versus savage to the language of black versus white. What is happening is race is being invented in order to justify the brutality that is inherent in a system in which people's bodies are controlled and exploited throughout their lifetime and then through their posterity, their children and their children's children and so on, down through the generations. That system of barbarous exploitation of others requires a story, a justificatory ideology, a way for people to say, it's okay that I'm doing this to these other people because, oh wow, it turns out they're not really people after all. That's how racism is working. And we should be crystal clear, that's how racism still works today. This originated uh, critical race theory, much like intersectionality, which plays a part, originated with it through the lens and it was meant to be used as a lens in the law. Intersectionality was a means by which uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw was thinking about how African-American women could be discriminated against as women and discriminated against as being African-American, while white women and African-American men experienced different forms of discrimination. And you see this um, in the history of numerous movements. Uh, you see this in during the civil rights movement in which African-American women were often pushed out, or even in the feminist movement in which African-American women were, once again, pushed out. How do you think that that dissemination of that of critical race theory and intersectionality outside of the law. How do you think that's gone so far? Because I think that one of the challenges we face um, when we're having conversations about intersectionality, when we're having conversations about critical race theory, is that these ideas, when I have conversations with people who for whom they find critical race theory, the concept objectionable, when you have conversations about like, racism is real while race is not. These ideas don't seem themselves objectionable. It's how these ideas are wielded that they do. How do you see that dissemination taking place? 
Let me back up and let's, let me, let's talk about the role of law for a second. What happens with critical race theory, it, it originates in law. Why? There's, there's a confluence of different factors. Part of what's happening is that in the late 1960s, civil rights protests extend to protesting the way in which universities essentially remained segregated white spaces. And universities begin a process of affirmative action that, that in substantial numbers brings in uh, students of color for the first time in the history of many of these universities. And one of the places that have the greatest critical mass of students of color are law schools. And so that partly there's that critical mass issue, but partly what's happening is who's going to law school in the first place. It's many people who are themselves quite political already. They're going to law school because they want to think about justice. They want to think about the way, the role of law in organizing our society. Perhaps they're inspired by Thurgood Marshall um, and the Black Civil Rights Movement, which after the late 1940s became quite uh, legal-centric. So it's this cohort of people who begin to, who really begin to grapple with racism as a social phenomena. Now, let me emphasize this and go, let me recover this metaphor of like critical race theory is akin to how do we understand the economy. No one would suppose that you could be an expert in economics without rigorous study. And yet everybody supposes that they understand race simply on the basis of their daily experience. And I think this is one of the challenges of talking in a sort of meaningful way about critical race theory. I, I think it's also um, just thinking about that. I think it's because while not everyone plays basketball, everyone has an experience of being a part of a racial group. And so you have a lot of people for whom their understanding. And I think that this gets at a question I want to get at later, which is about kind of the is there an essentialist or anti-essentialist nature to critical race theory where you have a lot of people who, for whom, like, well, I'm X, but I've never experienced X, or I am X and I have experienced X. I think that plays a role as well. Yeah, I think you're right. So part of how race works as an ideology is to reassure people that race is natural and self-evident and easily understood. Of course, that person is black. Of course, that person is white. Of course, that person is Latino or Asian, and we know what it means, and we don't need experts to tell us. And if experts tell us something different, they're lying to us because race is simply self-evident, right? That's part of the idea that race is natural and biological. But of course, it's not natural and biological. It's not self-evident. It's instead a complex cultural product that definitely shifts over time in response to functional demands, materialist demands in society. Right? And so here it, be here it becomes this like huge problem of trying to talk about race in sophisticated ways with people who A, have no training in the area, and B, are convinced they don't need it because race is obvious, natural, and biological. And so you're, you're already in these completely different positions. This applies to whites, but it also applies to a lot of people of color, right? Like, if you come into a conversation about race, but you haven't done a lot of reading. You haven't done a lot of thinking. And, and I don't mean just scholarly reading, though. Obviously, it's I'm, I'm professionally obligated to promote that. But it could be it could be, you know, a so much of fiction. Um, I, I think of Toni Morrison's work. What a first rate introduction to race theory. Right. So it can be fiction. It, it, it can be a drama, some music. Right. But you really need to spend time thinking critically about what race is and how it works. And if you haven't, you're going to struggle um, to try and understand all these different concepts and, and what they imply. So I want to get back, though. You mentioned it being disseminated or talked about in culture. But how do you think it seems that th there's a difference between culture and then there's a diversity trainings that happen in workplaces and kind of how um, I've argued often that a lot of times our conversations about race often turn into a conversation about th something to the side of race. We don't want to look fully at it. It's like looking at the sun for some reason. So we're looking next to it. And there seemed a couple of problems here. First, there are trainings or an understanding of critical race theory that is so hinged on a specific understanding of what critical race theory means or even what race means that seems to be 
I would argue, somewhat problematic, but also how we're even having these conversations about critical race theory in the workplace or elsewhere that seem concerning. How does the transformation from this is an understanding, a theory, a lens through which to think about the world, how has that turned into, and here's what we're going to do about it, here's how to deal with it? Has there been a break in the chain along that transformation? Of course, and you know, of course, because what we are saying about race is that it reflects a way to justify or explain different power relationships. And now we can apply that same lens to understanding how diversity and inclusion trainings work, for instance, or the popularity of one understanding of critical race theory that limits it to simply a discussion of implicit bias that is, that is sort of oh, an unconscious racism that's widely shared. When we step back and we say, well, what's happening with diversity and inclusion or implicit bias? What we notice is that we have institutions that remain white dominant, both in terms of their self-conception, in terms of their goals, in terms of their personnel, in terms of their culture. These are white dominant institutions. And how do you approach a white dominant institution and make the argument that they should grapple with racism, that they should integrate? You can imagine approach that, that says, well, we, we should talk with them about the way in which these are white dominant and white, and, and, and white power actually needs to be broken and shared. And you can imagine what the response is going to be. Or you can think of another approach in which you say, oh, well, let's say to these organizations that actually their workforce is going to be more productive when it's more diverse and that more voices should be welcome, that more voices tend to be more creative. And this will allow them to be more successful in marketing their projects and their widgets to all sorts of different communities, including communities of color that are so far untapped markets, right? That is so much of what we're to the way we talk about race reflects an unequal distribution of power between groups that are categorized by race and it skews how we talk about it and just to bring implicit bias back in implicit bias is a very helpful concept that is popular not simply because of its analytic power that is that if you're you know steeped in american culture you've internalized racist ideas but it's popular because it spreads the blame and thus it erases the blame. All of us have internalized racist ideas, therefore none of us are popular. And it turns out this is a very comfortable way to talk about racism with racially privileged groups to, to essentially exonerate them. Right, where it becomes a concept I, I was asking some people about this and like it sounds like the concept of original sin or blood libel of some kind of like we're all responsible so no one is responsible and especially because i think that there is a debate among critical race theorists where if you have a essentially the argument of integration into spaces that have wielded power versus challenging whether or not those spaces should wield power in the first place. So is it better to diversify the Department of Homeland Security or is it better to ask why we have a, a Department of Homeland Security? And that kind of gets to the materialist versus the cultural argument that I think a lot of people are having, where I think a lot of companies and a lot of people, places that are holding these trainings are really comfortable with having the, we would much rather argue that all of us are deeply racist, so none of us are deeply racist, than ask a lot of really big materialist questions about why we're even here. I think that's exactly right. Though I do want to also suggest a very important pivot that I and that others are really trying to promote. And, and you, you gestured toward it at the very beginning of the conversation, which is the relationship between race and class. So Derek Bell uh, talks about this theory of interest convergence, and, it, and it's such an important insight because what he says is race is structured in such a way that it benefits whites there will not be big advances in racial justice until there's a convergence of the interests of blacks in achieving racial justice, plus the interests of some important segments of the white community. And he actually, he reduces it to a mathematical formula. Black interests plus white interests equals racial justice. Remove one of those two, you don't get racial justice. But it's also true that Bell was operating from a paradigm that understood racism as fundamentally a hierarchy of whites over non-whites. 
And this led to some deep pessimism on his part. Because yes, I, I recently did some reading, especially on um, he wrote and we'll include this in the show notes, uh, his paper in the Harvard Law Review in 1980, Brown versus Board of Education and the Interest Convergence Dilemma, where he essentially argues that Brown basically traded the rights of whites not to associate blacks in favor of the rights of blacks to associate with rights. And that there was it was a really interesting paper, but it is pessimistic. Well, it's pessimistic when you combine it with a vision of racism as fundamentally a hierarchy of whites over non-whites. Because if that's what's happening and whites hold most of the power, then there's no circumstance that you can imagine in which white interests are actually served by disestablishing racism. And this leads Bell to publish a book that's subtitled The Permanence of Racism, right? Like, like from this model. But I want to make clear, interest convergence is actually liberatory and hopeful if you understand racism as also and indeed primarily a weapon of powerful elites against all of us, because this changes what the interests of whites might be. And I think that that's actually a more accurate description of racism across the 400 years of history of this country, but especially over the last 50 years. Because over the last 50 years, we've seen the party of big business Right, the Republican Party, formerly known as the Party of Big Business, reconstitute itself as the party of white grievance, at least in its campaigning and governance. But in terms of what it's actually doing, it's actually rewarding billionaires and corporations. That is, right now we're living in an era in which the main impetus behind white racism is not white people in general. It's the interests of powerful elites, Donald Trump, the Mercers, the Koch brothers, all of these dark money funded organizations. They are actively promoting racial fear and hysteria because they profit from it. And once we understand that and then bring back in interest convergence, now we have a new possibility for change. Now we have a story that says, dear white folks, anti-black racism is the biggest threat in your own lives. Because anti-black racism is being used to mobilize you to vote for greedy elites who are rigging the economies for themselves while they do nothing to stop the pandemic, while they do nothing to stop the, the quick approach of, of climate collapse. Your interests, whatever race you are, are best served by rejecting racism, rejecting racial division, building cross-racial solidarity so that we have sufficient power to take our country back from these powerful elites. Let's take a break. And then I want to dive a little bit more into that race and class, which you've just written a book on. I want to dive a little bit more into that divide. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. 
you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I'm interested in this. I'm so glad that you mentioned the book that you've written on this subject, because I think that that is something that from the left, we've seen a lot of conversation about. And I I hate this term. I am going to use air quotes because podcasting is a very heavily visual medium. The term identity politics, identity politics is being a distraction from class issues and that the use of race is a cudgel that is being used from the right and from the far left, might argue, the center left to distract from the means by which corporations are, for instance, talking about Black Lives Matter on Instagram while funding terrible things that hurt folks um, at the bottom of the ladder of all races. Now, I I would argue that all politics is identity politics. The GI Bill was identity politics. Housing bills are identity politics. If you have an identity, congratulations, you are participating in identity politics. But I'm interested in how you see that relationship, the idea that it's race versus class. And you're arguing in your book that it can be race and class, that we can think about these issues, because I think... For me, historically, the time uh, in the United States of the least income inequality was in the early 1950s. And the time of the highest union membership took place at a time in which unions were heavily segregated. And what we've seen is my colleague Ezra Klein wrote in his book, Why We're Polarized, that our time of least political polarization happened when the political space was largely one in which everyone involved was white and male. You know, you can be a Southern Democrat or Northern Republican, and you can all come together and make an agreement because you're all basically very similar to one another. How do you see addressing that divide um, and bringing those interests together? How do you see that working effectively? So uh, let's call one group the class left. And the class left actually tells a story similar to the one you just told about this sort of heyday of the unions and a time when people could really focus on class issues and a time when it was recognized, yes, there's some racial issues, but those are racial issues that plague communities of color. And even for communities of color, the main issues are class issues. So let's stop focusing on the race. Let's focus on class. If we just solve the class issues, that would get us so far toward social justice. And then we could deal with what we have to deal with in terms of racism later. Um, you might recognize that in Bernie Sanders' rhetoric up until the last few months of the most recent campaign. It was really like Class is the main issue all of us face, including people of color, and indeed ignoring racism in favor of class-based solidarity is a racial justice approach because people of color are disproportionately poor and will disproportionately benefit from our new class politics. So here's the sort of, here's the fundamental mistake. Racial division is the number one weapon of the rich in the class war. They are winning. And you cannot turn around and say, great, well, let's ignore their number one weapon. That's a recipe for disaster. What is it that took the white working and middle classes away from the Democratic Party? Dog whistle, racial fear campaigns. Racism is the number one weapon of the rich in the class war. They're winning. So one, let's let's bring this back to the story of the 1950s. Many white liberals tell a story in which Democrats did not discover racial uh, racial issues until 1964, when Lyndon Johnson supported the Civil Rights Act and then immediately generated a backlash among whites in the South and, and across the rest of the country. That's simply wrong as a matter of history. Democrats were unable to win national elections after the late 1930s without the support of African-Americans. And African-Americans supported Democrats because even though the benefits of the New Deal were disproportionately reserved for whites, 
African-Americans were still much better off under the New Deal supporting Democrats than they were supporting Republicans, and certainly if they lived in the South, right? So the coalition that produces great advances in economic equality for America is a black and white coalition from the late 1930s on. What changes in the 1960s is the party of big business figures out how to leverage increasing white anxiety about racial equality into the mass defection of whites from the party of working people to the party of big business. And here's where your comment about identity politics is is so right. There's a great book called Democracy for Realists that reduces to this point. The fundamental questions that all of us ask as we engage in politics, small p politics, how do we organize our society? The fundamental questions we ask are, who am I in the society? Who threatens me? And who are my allies? And every one of us is asking those questions. Those are the questions around which Donald Trump organizes every one of his campaign stops. He's telling a story in which we are the good, deserving people, often coded as white. The people who threaten us are bad, violent, and undeserving, often coded as non-white. And our allies are the business leaders who are going to drive this economy forward rather than allow people to be betrayed by liberals who support these undeserving, violent people of color. He's telling an identity story, and it's an identity story that kicked the economic populism, we can organize on class sort of approach, failed failed against an identity story. Every one of us is organizing our lives in terms of identity politics. So I'm interested. There was actually a fascinating op-ed that came out from um, the New York Times' Ross Duthat, in which he actually, I noted, and I, I would be fascinated to hear your thoughts on this, his thought on the issue of how we think about race, and especially in relation to the 1960s, is that the story of the 1960s, the one that he argues that many on the left, the central left, hold right now is one that is very much about African-Americans and white Americans. And it's very much reflective of a time in the 1960s in which America was majority white. And this is before immigration laws shifted in the mid-1960s. And so now the story of race in America is far more complex. And there very much is a sense that how the understanding of race works um, for Latinos, which for one, the even the term Latino doesn't really get at the diversity of a community that could include people from dozens of countries and tens of millions of people and Asians, which is very much similar. You know, that if your story is going to be very different, if you are someone who emigrated from Thailand 40 years ago or someone who emigrated from China 15 years ago. So uh, how do you think critical race theory can think about how these groups interrelate with one another? Because again, the understanding of what race means in the individual lives of people who are whose experiences of racism are not on a black versus white paradigm, how do you think that understanding is different and how do you think it fits into how we talk about race today? I think that Dufat's op-ed was half right, but his conclusion is entirely wrong. So, and let me introduce a different term. So I had just spoken about the class left, and the point of view of the class left is that we should, to the extent possible, minimize attention to racial issues and stress what supposedly brings us together, class issues, and this fails because it ignores racism. There's another group that I would call the race left, and I think that Dufat is really criticizing the race left. And I think that actually has a very important point. The race left perspective is that we are indeed locked into a racial conflict in the United States. Trump says we're locked into a conflict between whites and people of color, and you should stand with whites. And the race left says, yes, we are locked into a conflict between whites and people of color, and you should stand with people of color. And now it doesn't take someone who's like a super sophisticated political analyst to see that if you say to white folks, hey, we're locked into a conflict between whites and people of color, you should stand with people of color, you'll get some, but most are going to say, I think I'm going to go stand with white people. And that's Donald Trump. And so when Duthat says, 
this is not a great way to build a coalition. He's exactly right. And I, and I know that not just because it stands to reason, but because for the last several years, I've been conducting studies on how you build cross-racial solidarity that rejects messages of racial fear and actually creates an ethos of taking care of each other. And I've tried this, hey, let's denounce white racism approach. And it fails. It not only fails among whites, but it actually fails among many people that we see as people of color. It's not especially popular among African-Americans, and it loses big among Latinos. But from there, Dufat goes on to say, okay, the left should not organize around racism. Wouldn't it be great until race is just one of those big, boring issues? And I'm like, are you high? Look at 2016, look at 2020. There's nothing boring about the fact that we have a president who spends all of his time stoking racial fear and conflict and is driving this country towards violence, right, all the time. That's where we're going. The big mistake from Duthat and also from many liberals is to con conclude that if we can't talk about white racism, we shouldn't talk about racism at all. And this is the pivot that I think the race left needs to make. We need to talk about racial division. We need to talk about the way in which racism is being weaponized. But we need to be clear, the main culprit is not white people in general. The main culprit are political elites doing the bidding of some of the wealthiest segments of America who are funding, fueling, and stoking racial fear all the time. And with that pivot, our research shows, you can actually build a cross-racial community. Or let me put this more pointedly. The most powerful political message out there today, right or left, is a political message that says, we all want the same thing for our kids, no matter what we look like or what, where we come from. But powerful elites right now are pushing conflict because they profit when we fear and fight each other. We must reject division, come together across our differences, and take power back for ourselves so that we can take care of our families and everybody else as, uh, as well. Right? That message wins. It is the most powerful political message for African Americans, for Latinos, for Asian Americans, and for whites as well. More powerful even than the dog, dog whistle racial fear message, and certainly more powerful than the message from the class left, let's organize on class issues but ignore race, and more powerful than the message from the race left, let's organize around fighting white racism. So I want to take another break, and then I want to talk a little bit about what the conclusions of critical race theory have to tell us about ourselves. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. One of the challenges, and there is a conservative writer, David French, who's written about this, and I think that this is something that critical race theorists think about a lot, is the idea that individuals are not, in general, great representatives of larger groups. And so... I think one of the challenges here is while a group prejudice impacts individuals, individuals themselves might say, like, I've never had this happen to me or my experience has been different. So there, there's a debate among critical race theorists about the idea of essentialism, about the idea of, and I think that that's something that's gotten a lot of criticism from outside of circles, the idea of you exist within the system, you are the system. How do you think about how individuals play within critical race theory and how essentialism or anti-essentialism works within this relationship? One of the core insights, indeed the word critical in critical race theory, the word critical was a gesture toward European thinking about uh, the way in which societies are socially constituted. We, we are not structured in terms of transcendental truths. The, you know, um, um, we are not driven primarily by reason. Um, objectivity is not possible. We cannot step outside our society. We are all ultimately social creatures, and our societies 
influence who we are, influence what we can imagine, provide the material out of which we construct our sense of self. Now, having said that, right, you, you can take that in a sort of a, a, a nihilistic d- a d- direction where it's like, you know, I am nothing except, no, 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 nonsense. That's one of the things that, that marked critical race theory as distinct from a different movement that was prominent among white legal academics, critical legal studies. Critical legal studies kind of took the philosophy and just ran with it to its, you know, to these extreme conclusions. Whereas critical race theorists said, we want a set of theories that help us understand social dynamics because we are deeply committed to changing those dynamics. And so these theories must be pragmatic and practical in their application. And so here's where we get this idea of like, Yes, we exist in a society that is itself deeply structured in terms of racial ideas. We need to make and remake ourselves within the constraints of that society, but we do have agency. We do have power. We can envision something we call justice. We can strive to promote that idea. We can build relations with others. We can debate and promote a shared vision of who we are and who we want to be. And that's always been at the heart of critical race theory. Is there a tension between an idea of individual agency and all of us being socially constituted? Of course. And is that resolvable? Not at all. Should we get hung up there? Please don't. There's too much other important work that needs to be done. I want to go back to talk a little bit about what critical race theory means in terms of the law. And something about critical race theory that I find particularly challenging is essentially within the legal tenets, the idea of, in some senses, rejecting the concept, or some do, the rejecting the concept of rights writ large. So, for example, the idea of the right to vote or the idea of people having rights within the legal system. And rather, I there are some critical race theorists who th- have a very different perspective on the idea of rights. Could you talk about what that perspective has looked like among academics and what that means in kind of a real politic sense? So if you think about the founding of the country, the idea was that there were a set of rights that inhered in human beings as human beings. They, they, these rights were, to use the phrase, inalienable. There's something natural about them and that these rights were somehow greater than any human society and that the best society could do was approximate those rights. And along comes European critical thought and it says everything we do as a society is socially produced and God's not directing this and there aren't rights that exist in nature. We're making this stuff up. And now from there, you can go in a couple of different directions. One direction is to say, therefore, it's all mystification and lie, and you're being duped to talk in the language of rights. And many people went there, especially critical legal studies. But I think a more sophisticated response is to say, okay, these ideas are culturally produced, including a culturally produced sense that these are bigger than any of us and that these make real moral demands on society and that change happens through people's belief in these rights. How can that be harnessed? How has that worked? What has what purposes has that served? How can that be created? How can that be promoted? And I think this is where critical race theory broke with critical legal studies was about the efficacy of rights, because critical race theorists could turn around and say, we would not be here but for the civil rights movement. And yes, rights may be socially produced, but they are powerful things. People will imbue them with love, with hope, with care. They will put their bodies on the line for those rights. And when they march, they can change society. And I think that has to be our understanding of rights, not always in a sort of a laudatory, celebratory way. The right understands this too. Notice the way in which the right promotes the idea that its partisans who are mainly reacting in terms of racial fear are instead upholding constitutional rights, defending the Constitution, the the so-called oath keepers for a right-wing militia that is prepared to use violence against their fellow citizens. But they say to themselves, we're defending the Constitution or, or the Second Amendment. Rights are a form of fundamentalism. 
And fundamentalism can, right, this belief that this is foundational, that this is fundamental, that this cannot be questioned, that this is so much bigger than all of us, that can be a powerful force for liberation. It can it can give people the courage to move, but it can also be manipulated and be a force of a reactionary um, movement that dehumanizes others. So I think I want to conclude by asking you if you needed to explain, because as we've said that a lot of the ways in which people have focused on critical race theory have focused on the cultural versus the material rather than asking questions about unions or the you know, the way that outsourcing has played into economic inequality. There's very much of a focus on eliminating cultural racism of some senses of make, ensuring representation at businesses or in films, for example. Clearly, both of those can matter, but there's definitely been a side on which businesses have decided to emphasize. How do you think that critical race theory could be effective and truly wielded effectively in order to generate change when it is not just a lens to think about how we think about race, but also a means by which to make how we think about race better? I think that was always the aspiration of critical race theory, to be a practical route towards justice while also being constantly self-critical because it's hard to know what justice is and it's hard to know what the best route is. And, And in fact, we can say now, I think with hindsight, the civil rights movement probably took a wrong turn in the 1950s and 1960s as it began to stress legal enforcement of integration and gave up on some of the earlier, more radical demands of actual sharing of power and resources and jobs, right? So so this is always tricky, but that's always been the aspiration of critical race theory. And, and I would say the challenge, the big challenge for critical race theory right now, and for all of us, is to recognize that racism and other social hierarchies are not things in themselves. They're proxies for power. And the most important thing we can do is think critically about how power is circulating in our society, who has it, how's it wielded, how's it justified, who does it harm, who does it exploit. That's a conversation that will get us to think about the relationship between race and class, but also, I think, puts us in a better position to recognize that human societies have always confronted the challenge of a very few capturing power for themselves and then using social ideas, social institutions, cultural forms to justify their power and our immiseration. And the challenge of every human society is to figure out beliefs and institutions and practices that take power and push it downward and outward to as many of us as possible. Right now, that's an incredibly important conversation about race, about class, about patriarchy, about immigration, about xenophobia, religious bigotry. These are fundamentally conversations about power, and the goal should be to understand power in a way that protects and empowers as many of us as possible. Well, thank you so much for a really interesting and I think I'm hopeful, helpful conversation. Thanks to all of you for listening and to our producer, Jeff Geld, and The Weeds will return on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.